Hello, this is your Bible teaching program, Search for Truth, with Brian Johnston. I'm delighted you can join us, and many thanks for giving us the privilege of your company. I hope you'll enjoy today's talk, which is the penultimate one of this series, called The Mindfulness Jesus Endorses. It's all about being mindful of what ultimately matters, and the main sections of Scripture Brian will be referring to are in the Gospels by Luke and John. So, here's Brian with today's talk. Thanks, John. We earlier remembered in this series, Jesus rebuked to Simon Peter, when Peter had tried to dissuade Jesus from talking in terms of dying at Jerusalem. The Lord had said then to Peter that he was not being mindful of God's things. We now want to turn that round, and by reading the Gospels as they report the words of our Lord, We want to try to discover what it means in practice to be mindful of the things that matter to God. Of course, that exchange with Peter immediately showed that the Lord was always mindful of his death. The Apostle John was someone who later saw into heaven, as he recounts in chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. And there he saw a vision of God appearing to hold a scroll in his hand, a scroll surely containing the judgments and plans God had for this world, as would later unfold throughout the detailed visions of the book of Revelation. But to John it was graphically shown that there was no one worthy enough to carry them out, no one at all, even in heaven. And this troubled John until he was told to view someone described as a lion. However, when John turned to look, he in fact saw a lamb. Without doubt, this has got to be the greatest mixed metaphor that could ever be. The Lord Jesus Christ is both, both the majestic and mighty lion and the sacrificial lamb. And because he is both, he is the only one worthy to fulfil all of God's plans for this world and the world to come. All authority and judgment has been committed to him. We sometimes sing the hymn that says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. We've already considered how the Bible explains that we died with Christ. This is the definition of a Christian, someone who has died and been raised in union with Christ as a spiritual reality. To be as mindful of the cross, therefore, as our Lord was on the earth, is what powers the kind of transformed life that God desires to see us living. This awareness of our union with Christ is the most far-reaching kind of mindfulness there can possibly be, and the one that has the richest benefit. What else did Jesus model for us in his life here, in terms of his mindfulness of issues God is interested in? Very much linked to what we've already considered is the theme of rescuing the lost, whether the lost are pictured as sick patients or scattered chicks or straying sheep or prodigal children, or, and this is the one I want to develop, as potential worshippers whom the Father in heaven is seeking after. The greatest exponent of mindfulness in its purest sense was our Lord as viewed in his life here on earth, which we look into by the help of the four gospel writers, whose work was, of course, superintended by God himself. As we trace the Lord's life to his death on the cross, we find there was a particular awareness that consumed him, a burning, passionate awareness. We are first allowed to glimpse it when it surfaces during a visit by Jesus with his parents to the Jerusalem temple. Luke takes up the story towards the close of his second chapter. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. 
Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Here is the first recorded expression of Jesus' human perception of his mission. At the age of twelve, he was mindfully aware of his purpose and destiny, and his father's business concerned his house on earth, which was, of course, the very setting for Jesus' words to his relieved parents that day. Later, the same awareness is made evident in the repetition of the same or similar words in the identical context. Jesus is again drawn to the Jerusalem temple, surely emulating perfectly the revelation enjoyed by the psalmist when he said that God loves the gates of Zion. In God's design... What had taken shape at Jerusalem, originally at God's explicit direction, was a reflection of a reality in heaven itself. Let's turn now to what John writes in his second chapter. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. These traders were defacing the integrity of the reflection of the heavenly here on earth at that time. The preciousness of the place to his God and Father was something, of course, our Lord was always aware of, as someone mindful at all times of those things which ultimately matter to God. One of those things, perhaps supreme among them, as the Bible witnesses to it from cover to cover, is God's intense longing to live on earth in a special way among people who serve him with obedient hearts. In pursuit of that staggering desire, God himself had stepped down into humanity and was headed for the cross, and the hour of which John repeatedly writes. Take, for example, his record of the conversation Jesus had one day with a non-Jewish woman whose thirst was deeper than she at first realised. John tells us in chapter 4 from verse 19 that the woman said to Jesus, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.' Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, 
For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When the hour of his death, of which Jesus had spoken to that woman, drew close, Jesus talked again, acknowledging the rejection he was facing by the Jerusalem leaders, whom he described as builders. In Matthew 21 and 43, he says this to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Jesus was the stone. In resurrection, he was raised and exalted by God and laid in the ultimate heavenly Zion above as the precious cornerstone, the elevated cornerstone of a spiritual structure rising from earth that would come to transcend all geographical boundaries. This would turn out to be the spiritual movement detailed from the time of the Acts of the Apostles forward, and one that found its expression in Christ's followers who remained loyal to his teaching passed on through his apostles and left on record to this day in their New Testament writings. This is so that we can be part of the same thing, through the same quality of obedience as those very first Christians. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this in chapter 3 and verse 6, But Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The same mindfulness with which Christ headed for the cross is reflected here in the confidence and hope of which Christians today are passionately aware, that is, those who satisfy that biblical condition and who consequently form God's spiritual house on earth today.
So I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and found it helpful. And if you've got any comments or questions for Brian, do get in touch. I'll be giving you some addresses in a moment. Uh, there's also a transcript book for all the talks, and it's available free by requesting the title The Mindfulness Jesus Endorses. You can order by email or by post, and here's the address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Once again, many thanks for the pleasure of your company today and your interest in these Bible studies. I hope you find them valuable. Next week is the final study in this series. Its titles A Focus on the Beauty of God's Glory. I hope you can join us. And until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me. Bye for now and may God richly bless you.